Hello, everyone. I'm Chris Kelly, founder and CEO of Upwave. Welcome to our Let's Talk Brand podcast. Today, our guest is Lynn Gerardo, currently the CMO of Heap. Lynn has extensive experience in marketing both consumer and B2B brands, so we're excited to learn about her brand experiences today. Lynn, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. So we'd love to hear about your journey learning about brand building, Lynn, and you have a rich set of experiences with a lot of household name brands like Pepsi and Starbucks and Microsoft, and a lot of leading B2B brands like Tableau and Amparity and, and Heap, an emerging analytics company. But we'd love to start at the beginning when you learned about brand building 101 items back at Pepsi. So we'll love to hear what were some of the most interesting things you learned, or maybe even some of the most counterintuitive things you learned about building brands, working with a group like Pepsi? Yeah, um, you know, as you mentioned, I, I have a very atypical background for a B2B marketer and um, started my journey out in, in consumer. And at Pepsi, I was a brand manager. And, you know, having that opportunity early in my career really shaped my thinking around marketing. And so it, you know, at Pepsi, it was all about uh, what levers you're driving. And we used a lot of models and data to look at what was the weather, what was humidity, what was driving consumer consumption from consumers. And um, that's really where I learned that brand is the only thing that matters. If you don't have preference from your brand walking into a retail store in a, in a business like, um, like PepsiCo or consumer products, then you're just fighting on price and placement. And so really creating that, um, why do you want a specific brand um, is really critical. And, you know, when you're selling colored caffeinated water, the product differentiation is, is fairly nuanced. <laughs> yes, there's flavor profiles, but at the end of the day, it, it, it is what creates brand. And I think I, I always say this to my team, which is, you know, decision-making is irrational. So we're all humans. Um, we, emotion is involved in every decision we make, even if it's, it's very technical. And so when, when we're selling products, we, we like to talk about features and function. The reality is it's really creating that emotional connection to the brand. And I think that's, that's, that's what sort of helped guide me through my career. Yeah, that's, that's great. You talked about the amount of data you had access to working as a brand manager at Pepsi. I'm sure that's changed drastically over the years. I know a lot of your Pepsi experience was for the most part before the, the digital revolution so to speak. So how, how do you think that job has changed? If you ran into a Pepsi brand manager today in 2022, do you think the core functions of the job are mostly the same uh, and some of the toolkits have changed or has data and analytics actually revolutionized the job and it would look nothing like it looked um, in a different era? That's a great question. I feel like I need to go do that. Uh, <laughs> um, I would say it's probably somewhere in the middle. Um, I, I believe one of the things that I love about marketing is it's constantly innovating. I like to say what I knew yesterday is no longer relevant today. I think it's the nature of this, this function. So really leaning into change. As you mentioned, digital has tra is transforming businesses, not just marketing. I think marketing was just early on the curve of using data to drive brands. Um, I still think there's some fundamentals and foundational 
pieces that brand managers look at. What are, what are the patterns that are driving consumption? How do I drive um, share and how do I drive brand preference? So I think those pieces are the same. How they get at that insight and how comprehensive it is and how timely it is, I think is what's really changed. I think the access to data just allows you to get insights faster. You know, I used to, I'm probably looking at months or, you know, old data or quarter old data. Now, hopefully they're looking at it daily, weekly at a minimum. Yeah. So that frequency has, has changed certainly. Yeah. That makes sense. You mentioned something that's a point I love. You said basically without brand, you're competing on price and placement. My view is that knowledge, that is probably common knowledge within a traditional CPG company, but I think a lost on a lot of newer upstart brands. So perhaps a newly formed direct to consumer uh, product believes that the world of branding isn't as applicable to them and that they can just put a product online and win with, with tactical performance advertising approaches. So we'll love your reaction to that is, do you believe that, that without brand, you're competing on price and performance thesis would hold even for something like a modern direct-to-consumer brand? I do. I think people think about it less uh, in the digital world that directly, but I think it's the same concept, which is um, a direct-to-consumer business, um, even that's a technology consumer upstart. There's two things that are happening if you don't have a brand. One, you're not in the consideration set. So you're not even capturing the market share. So you have a scale problem. The second thing that happens is Two, if you're just trying to do, I'm going to call it direct response type tactics, it gets really expensive really fast because you're basically trying to build demand off the backs of things that aren't designed to build demand. I always say your brand and your perception is what creates demand. Your um, direct response, your demand gen engine is, is what harvests it. And so if you're trying to harvest without having that brand presence, it's just, it just gets really costly. So scale and cost really get in your way. Yeah. I think that's a, a great insight that is lost on a lot of newer marketers I've talked to who have more of a direct consumer background, that distinction that brand creates demand and direct response tactics can harvest demand. I think that's, that's totally true. And I've, I've, uh, have talked to many people who've, who've, Across the chasm and had that realization, it has totally changed how they've thought about marketing their brand, how they thought about the marketing mix, how they thought about which channels they activate. So I think that that is a, a key point that's still lost on a lot of marketers. And yeah, we like to say that there's no greater test of unaided awareness than the search bar. So to <laughs> all these brands spending a lot of money on expensive direct response tactics, certainly would love to drive more direct traffic, certainly would love to drive more organic search. The, the best test of that is, is, or that is nothing but a test of unaided awareness, if you think about it. So I agree how those, those brand core brand pillars still are applicable, even in a fully digital, fully direct response focused marketing world. And speaking of search, I know you have a great experience at Microsoft getting the Bing brand off the ground. So we'd love for you to share that story with our listeners and set the table for us. What, what was the Microsoft strategy in the early 2000s around search? Why did you take that role and sign up for that challenge of competing against uh, already a pretty, pr pretty well-known brand in Google? Maybe not as entrenched as it is today, but pretty well entrenched by, by the time Bing had launched. It was, it was very well entrenched. Um, 
I, the context, just to kind of set the table, is um, frankly, no one knew Microsoft had a search engine. And if they did, they thought it was MSN or, or one of the, the um, content properties. And so um, we had seen market share for that product decline quarter over quarter for, for some time. And so it was really an effort to put a stake in the ground and up our game in the market. And so we were basically formed as a team to launch a brand against, frankly, the verb in the category. Google, pe people call search Google. And so that was um, one exciting, if I think about from a, from a marketing experience perspective, like that was a, you, you get very few opportunities in, in a career to um, have a company that's very committed to making an investment in a category and um, really moving the dial against something, not only from a product perspective, but also from a brand perspective. So the thing that I really appreciated about that experience is Microsoft didn't just invest in building a great product. We had massive investment, like hundreds of millions of dollars invested in building a brand. And it was all focused on perception. What's the perception that customers need to have to have confidence in using Bing as an option against Google? And we went from a leaky bucket on share to positive um, traction, um, you know, for the first two or three years running. And then I, I, I don't have traction um, after that, but um, it was really just kind of changing the game on it. And it all came down to brand investment. How did you guys think about the competitive brand landscape. I know part of the successful Microsoft campaigns of that era were the famous Scroogle campaign, <laughs> a bit of anti-marketing around Google. So I imagine you guys were able to successfully capture some con consumer angst about using Google search. Was that part of the brand strategies was, was to understand your competitors' brands positioning and, and how that could be used to your advantage? It was that, and a big part of it was understanding what like consumer frustrations were with search. I mean, the most used um, function in search is the back button. I mean, you really don't find what you need to find quickly. So it was really just finding areas where we could speak to that problem and the chaos of like discovering the endless information that's on the internet in an organized fashion based on what you're trying to, to get to. And so I think... Um, the product nailed in a couple perspectives. And then we really just focused on, you know, that finding information um, quickly as the, as the key anchor of differentiation. So it was really just a lot of research on what is that um, angst of using search. Yeah. And how did you guys think about the interplay of a parent brand and a product brand? Certainly Microsoft then and now has numerous product brands. You think of Bing and you think of Xbox and you think of Windows and Office, perhaps separately than you think of the Microsoft parent brand, depending of, of your perception of those products. So how was that part of your, your strategy to understand using the Microsoft parent brand more or less in Bing campaigns or, or any, any other color on that would, would be super interesting to hear? That's a great question. I would say Microsoft at the time, and this is you know, obviously several years ago, had a stronger 
um, perception in the B2B landscape than it did in B2C. Obviously, it had massive um, product investment across all. When we launched Bing, it was really establishing a distinct search brand, um, aligning it to the Microsoft, but the Microsoft brand was very much secondary and it was really creating strength around preference for Bing and making it not disassociating with Microsoft, however. So um, kind of, as I mentioned earlier, no one knew the company had a search engine. And so how did we use the strength of Microsoft, but not allow perception of Microsoft's innovation to get in the way of having an innovative search engine? Yeah, that's great. That's a, a thoughtful approach. And you talked about building a verb out of your product, which is the dream of like most tech brands. And you've also worked somewhere where it's been a noun. It's grabbing a Starbucks is <laughs> maybe uh, something that's a placeholder for not just coffee and tea, but even just a local business meeting and, and meeting someone in person. Uh, Starbucks brand has a lot of those connotations. So we'd love to hear about some of that experience. And we'd love for you to start with how Starbucks thinks about the interactions of customer experience and brand. I've read a lot about how Starbucks thinks about the brand is certainly more than the the logo you see in an advertisement or the characters you see on a, a television advertisement. It's the how this chair feels in the how the leather chair feels when you sip that coffee, how the store smells, how the barista greets you, all, all those things play into the brand. So love to hear about that experience of how you thought about um, how Starbucks in general thinks about customer experience and, and brand and how those functions interact. I love that question. I, I would I would say Starbucks is the strongest brand thinker holistically of any company I've worked at. Um, I like to say, you know, brand is perception of every touch point that you, an experience you have with a product, a brand, customer success, a store, whatever. And um, Starbucks really understood it. I joined Starbucks right when they were doing their massive rebrand to their current logo. And they were taking actually coffee out of the brand mark, which was a really, really meaningful deal um, because they had, you know, expanded to tea and food and juices and all those other things at the time. And so they were trying to make the brand more relevant to the set of categories. And they built a immersive experience that literally you could walk through that started with where they source coffee beans and how that's important and how that's part of the brand experience all the way to how does that get translated into research and development um look and feel in the store if you you know like little things like bringing in local experiences, the burlap from the coffee bags into textures in the store, um, to your point, the smell. Like, do I walk in and like get that a wonderful whiff of coffee when I'm going in, when we're trying to expand into, um, you know, food and things like that? And how is that impacting the experience? Um, and then, you know, most importantly, like, what's that relationship that I have with the barista? Do they know me? Do I feel like it's my local coffee shop? Um, am I having that experience? Little things like writing my name on a cup was this very personalized um, connection they made with customers. And then I think the final thing that people forget about is um, the digital experience. Um, Starbucks at the time had such a strong social 
brand in the market that they were able to extend their brand experience to digital and sort of immersive, you know, photography and things like that around, um, around everything that we're doing. So just holistically looking at every aspect of the brand um, was, was um, amazing and so well done there. That's fascinating regarding Starbucks approach to that. And I, I love the thinking extending to digital and how when I open the, the digital app on my phone, the, the brand experience is at play there. And how, how did you guys think about measurement of these different uh, changes? So pretty big deal to remove coffee from the, the name. How did you think about that in terms of knowing if it was effective and achieved the goals you wanted in the minds of consumers? And how did you think about time frame? Was this something that you expected to have impact within months, within quarters, within years? a great question. I, I would say definitely from a rebrand perspective, it was years. One, it took years to roll out. If you think about changing the logo and logo mark on every single store cup apron in like, I don't know, 15,000 stores globally, like that was not a, a light undertaking. And so it was definitely, you know, a long-term strategic move. And I would say from a measurement perspective, I don't know that there was direct measurement on like, did the rebrand impact this? I think it was overall looking at growth of the business and perception of the Starbucks brand overall. And are we able, as we launch tea and refreshers and products like that, like, were we able to associate where people preferencing our products in the market? So it was a really like, how did it apply to those categories as we expanded and just the business grew overall? Yeah, that's that's great. I can certainly understand the difference between a rebrand of someone of that scale with a lot of physical assets and physical collateral versus a, a digital-centric company where it's a little easier to slot in a new new logo. So I guess another thing to consider <laughs> with a rebrand based on the um, based on the full cost of that rebrand. So probably the most important question of all regarding your Starbucks experience, what is your Starbucks order? What's your go-to? So my go-to has changed. My go-to used to be a double tall non-fat latte. And now my go-to is a tall Americano um, with nothing in it. And so I'm trying to trying to just go straight to hardcore caffeine. Um, <laughs> straight to the good stuff. Good. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Straight to cut to the chase. And as we go back to your career, as you moved into senior leadership roles, you expanded your experience from just marketing to consumers to also marketing to small businesses and mid-sized businesses and the enterprise. So you made the shift into B2B as you started taking on leadership roles at the Gettys, the Tableaus, the Imperities, the heaps of the world. So we'd love for you to share your thinking on that, was that an intentional shift you made that you had a lot of experience in consumer marketing and you wanted to get into B2B marketing? Or was it just this great, great role or two opened up on that, that side of the proverbial fence? So you, you took the role and, and weren't thinking so much about the consumer versus B2B aspect of it. I would say um, some of it is circumstance and some of it was just really interesting opportunities for my own personal growth and development. Um, I actually blended B2C and B2B at Microsoft. So I started out on the B2C side of the business and then got the B2B scale 
um, what I learned there was really like B2B is really about understanding different levers. So you have a sales organization and a B2C company often, but it's really how it works differently. Um, you learn about ecosystem and community. So I really liked that aspect of B2B. And I, I haven't like, I've gone back and forth. So I actually went to Starbucks after my B2B experience at Microsoft for, you know, almost a decade. And so that was really about um, reconnecting with brand experience and direct to customers. And then I went to Getty and, and it, like, frankly, my perspective is it blurs. So as to your point, like digital innovation has come along in the marketing um, realm. Getty's a great example. It was a B2B company we sold to um, organizations and individual designers using, using um, the, the creative assets, um, but it was really an e-commerce site. And so it's kind of in the B2B world, what we call product-led growth. But back in the day, it was really just, how do you get someone to sign up for a subscription service to, to this product? And so my B2C um, experience really like you're just marketing to an individual. So it was all very relevant. And I understood from my Microsoft experience how to connect that into a sales organization and how to support enterprise sellers and positioning and what tools and, and um, guidance they need. And then that translated into Tableau where I just was able to help build that at scale. And it was a similar motion. So I think the lines are blurring as, as, customer expectations like i like to say that the genie's not going back in the in the bottle so to speak like the expectation you have as a b2b buyer is like a consumer you expect to be able to self-serve you expect to be able to try products you expect to be able to jump in and and experience things on your own and that is really grounded in kind of b2c experiences as customers and the ability to take that to a B2B brand and enable that for customers is, I think, what helps scale. And it's also where, where um, companies are innovating in that space. Yeah, I think that's a great point. The consumerification of enterprise technologies has changed our expectations as B2B buyers. To your point, we want to try something out. We want it to have a good interface. Maybe our expectations of the usability of a B2B product or pretty similar to what we'd expect out of a consumer product these days. So it makes sense those lines are blurring, but I'm sure there's still some aspects where the lines are still distinct. So are there some examples you can think of where a playbook that works marketing to consumers absolutely does not work marketing to enterprises or vice versa, or any advice for our listeners of some pitfalls of potentially thinking of consumer marketing and enterprise marketing as as too similar and some mistakes you can make there? That's a great question. I feel like I'm always pitching people about how much similarities they, there are that I'm, <laughs> I'm really trying to emphasize the, the differences. Um, I do think there are tactics and things that um, like at the end of the day, the complexity of, I think of large enterprise, um, you know, SaaS um, buying process is um, is very complex, and so the not assuming high purchase ticket items in a B two C world like a car is the same as marketing, <clears throat> um, you know, a six or seven figure deal for a SaaS company. 
you have multiple constituents, you have to position different to maybe a technical audience and a customer versus a business audience. You have to understand who has budget power versus veto power. That's a very different dynamic than you get in pure B2C. Now, you could argue that maybe exists in sort of a family unit, but it's it's usually um, uh, simpler, I'm going to say it that way, um, than in, in a B2B. You also sit within context of a technology stack when you're selling. So what other you know, solutions are there? Um, so really understanding the ecosystem is, a, is very specific to B2B and not to be underestimated. And I don't I don't, I haven't found as many analogies in the B2C world. Yeah, no, that's, that makes sense. And I appreciate, yeah, you're reversing your thinking. I know most conversations are probably about the uh, breaking the conventional wisdom that these things are different. And uh, so it's helpful to think of the, the few ways they maybe are still different. And I know you work with a variety of startup marketers who think about how to apply some lessons that you can share from larger brand marketing experience, from brand marketing experience at larger companies to their startups. Any, any advice there that you hear yourself commonly giving? Certainly the resources are different, right? The resources that a Starbucks have has will always outpace the resources that a early stage startup has. So certainly some, some ideas just are out the window if you're for budgetary reasons, but are there any other observations you've seen as you've you've helped early stage startup marketers think about applying some of the lessons you've learned? I think there are two, maybe three specific things that I think are important to early stage. One is counterintuitive. It is you have to think about scale um, sooner versus later. Uh, I had someone you know sort of say, "Well, Lynn, we're only this big. We don't have to worry about scale right now." And I said, "You have to worry about scale more than anyone at a big." company does because they have more resources than you do. Everything you do has to be leveraged as much as possible. And so I think um, not assuming scale doesn't matter when you're small is actually really critical. Two, it's um, not being afraid to to build that brand awareness. Uh, it's really hard to invest in brand and awareness when you're small and just trying to get your, 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 your selling motion happening. Um, but like I said, that's what's creating demand um, and it gets too expensive to generate if you don't have awareness in the market. And so figuring out cost efficient ways of either through influencers, community, customers, um, you know, high touch events, um, that type of thing. The third one is probably the hardest one is focus. Um, you, you, when you're in a small company, everything's an opportunity. And that creates, I think, distraction, like really have to hone in on who are your most important sort of critical early buyers and core focus and help create that momentum around um, building from a foundation. It's really about finding that momentum point in your, in your customer base and focusing on where you're going to, where you're going to create um, some, some leverage. Yeah. I love, I love the marriage of your focus points around focus and leverage. I think that ties to the, the Silicon Valley phrase around more wood behind less arrows that people always talk about with startups, always telling founders and early stage executives to put more wood behind less arrows. I think that that's right. You have to know, you have to know what the main goals are. You have to keep the main thing, the main thing. 
and you have to seek leverage because you don't have the resources of a Starbucks. So you have to, in a marketer's world, repurpose your assets as much as possible. You have to make that one article into a white paper and a webinar and an op-ed and get as much leverage as possible out of every every asset. So I think that your point your points are on focus and and leverage tie nice together. Hundred percent. Yeah, that's that's great. In terms of proving that your investments get you to that next level, we'd love to pivot to talking about measurement and analytics. A lot of our listeners are in roles that require them to prove the payoff of their brand investments, whether that's in some cases a short-term ROAS metric or in other cases a longer-term financial impact metric. We'd love to hear your experience with that, either in your recent roles or in previous roles, how you've partnered with probably the finance function, probably with CEOs to help them understand the payoff, specifically of brand investments. Certainly the payoff of lower funnel direct response investments are a little more straightforward, but don't can't be used to fully capture the, the long-term payoff of a brand investment. So how, what, what's your approach to that? And how have you approached those conversations with finance or with CEOs of truly understanding the total economic value received from brand investments? So my experience is you have to start with data. Um, so if you want to invest with in brand and get the support you need from the C-suite, I'll call it, then you have to help them understand what that value is. And so um, I have not, <laughs> so first of all, I'm not shy about grabbing data and, um, you know, really putting numbers behind things. And so I think it's the willingness to kind of dive into that on the brand level. Brand is hard to measure, but there's lots of ways, you know, your product um, is taking us to the next level in terms of brand measurement. But, you know, if I look back, it's a few things, which is, um, kind of some of the things I talked about, which is how much awareness do I have in the market? What's my share of voice? As you mentioned, you know, if you just think about consumer behavior and you're trying to understand someone, go to Google and search your brand. So it's pretty easy to get perspective of where you sit relative to competition in any product category and use that. If you have a more sophisticated way to measure brand perception and um, share of, share of um, market or share of voice, that's that's also, you know, really important, but I think it's just awareness. Then why does awareness matter? Then you have to break it down into, is it bringing people to the site? Is it bringing people to your product? Is it bringing people to your store? Um, are you seeing volume? And so that's the tricky part to connect where it's easier if you're doing direct response to get that it's harder if it's brand. Um, and so I've done some very specific work where, um, you know, I basically shut off brand in a region. <laughs> uh, like I isolated Australia one time in a, in a, I won't, uh, and just basically measured how much is it costing me to get a conversion in a customer when I don't have brand running and how much lift am I getting when I have better awareness in the market? And I measured very specifically what happened to my awareness and what happened to the cost of acquiring a customer that we were using conversion metrics at the time. And so it was very easy. It took time and I had to make that bet, but it was very easy to um, um, basically show the value of why we have to maintain a minimum brand investment to support kind of our growth targets. Um, 
And I don't remember the exact decay on the brand, but I do know it took us almost a year to recover from, I think we did a, we did a test over four month period and it took us a year to recover our brand perception in the market. Um, And we did see decay um, when we turned it off. Um, We just, you know, we saw direct, like this was a e-commerce site. So we saw direct traffic going down. We saw, um, you know, just conversion rates drop. And so we tied kind of directly. Now, correlation, causation, all that stuff. (laughs) The reality is um, we were able to prove out how that helped support efficiency overall of, of driving the business. The other thing I think people forget about on brands that I'd like to, to remind people of is customer perception, loyalty, keeping customers connected to your brand. I mean, the cheapest customer to have is the customer who's going to repurchase. And so making sure that that connection is there. And so measuring brand satisfaction or loyalty or whatever way you measure quality with customers um, is critical. So I've used that as a way to, to look at how do you correlate perception of a product or brand with, with customer retention and that, uh, or repurchase patterns, depending on your business. That I think is, is a, is a very effective way to show value of brand as well. Yeah, that's a great point. Brand not only helps with acquisition, brand helps with retention and brand helps with growth. So we should always remember to, to include those aspects in our analysis of, of a total brand payoff. That's, that's great. And yeah, whether you're using the, the matched market testing you described or incrementality analysis, uh, different approaches to understanding the power of brand. I think it is interesting to think of the, the, the decay period and the recovery period. I remember talking to the head of an agency that marketed a, a well-known fast food brand, a household brand for food. Um, and they talked about the, the decay period being much shorter than the recovery period, where if they turned off their brand media within a year, they would see pretty clear decay in brand metrics. But then you think within a year you could recover. And that wasn't the case for a variety of reasons. It would be a three to five year recovery period if they, um, if they had turned off their investment. So shows that a lot of times you have to run even to stay in place with a brand. If once you establish high awareness or high favorability, it, you, you don't just keep it for free. You have to keep investing. Chris, I think that's a really important point that you're making, which is people think, oh, I have brand awareness. So I don't, I can like take, I can borrow from it. It's like goodwill in the bank. It's like your savings account. The reality is when you spend your savings account, it goes down. And um, I think there's so much, um, just uh, poor focus on just drawing down that asset versus um, what it takes to maintain. There's so much noise in the market and so much distraction that consumers have that if you're not in front of them, they'll get connected to whoever is. Yeah, I love that bank account analogy. I'm going to steal that and talk to the <laughs> That's great. Okay, well, Lynn, we'd love to ask you what we call fast facts here on the Let's Talk Brand podcast. So tell us about the first brand you remember having a connection with. Um, this is going to date me, <laughs> but it was uh, Life Serial. Um, I don't know if you remember the Mikey Likes It campaign. Um, I was a little kid. Obviously, I, my, we ate a lot of cereal. I had a working mom, and um, she was always pushing us to eat healthier options. And whatever it was about that commercial just connected with, like, was a little kid 
he was being forced to eat stuff, but he actually liked it. So, you know, I don't know, whatever that like was the first thing that popped in my head when I, when, I, when you said that. So there. That's great. Maybe that's the answer to a related question we love to ask, which is what's your favorite ad spot or jingle of all time? Is that also the Mikey likes it or is there another jingle that comes to mind? That one is good. The other uh, jingle, I mean, I, I have a breakfast theme going on. <laughs> the best um, part of waking up is folders in your cup. I think from a jingle standpoint, that one is just like, there's something about it. it's clever, it's short. Um, it just sticks in your head. So that, yeah. that one is. It was a classic <laughs> iconic brand campaign. I think we so, underestimate the value of jingles these days. I, I think so. I think in a digital world, yeah, we've forgotten that uh, about their power. And what about fast forwarding to today? What's your favorite brand right now? Favorite brand right now? I'm gonna cheat. I'm gonna. There's a couple of brands that I love right now. So Patagonia and Allbirds, both. I think they're doing a really great job of being what I'm gonna call holistic brands. So they have great products. They don't compromise on quality of their products, but they also just like represent values and you know sort of our are altruistic brands that um, I think people aspire to and want to be associated with. So um, those, those jump to mind. Interestingly enough, the brand I use the most is, <laughs> is still Amazon as much as I hate to admit that, but it, it is like connected in, I think there's a box that shows up every day at my house. So from a brand perspective, it is like um, probably the most utilized Yeah, it's a it's a utility in all all of our lives. And you being a Seattleite, I think you you have to pay the Amazon tax more so than than all of us, right? <laughs> I have to uh, fund my neighbors. <laughs> yeah. So exactly, exactly. And maybe or switching gears to a slightly more provocative question: What is a brand that you're jealous of, even e either as uh, jealous of of what they've done from a B two B standpoint? So you're jealous from your role as CMO at Heap, or you're just jealous as a marketer and you look at that campaign and think, why didn't I think of that? <laughs> um, the brand I'm most jealous of is more at a marketer level. And it's because I don't think they built their brands off of, uh, I'm going to call it timing and market need. And so my, my answer is Zoom. I feel like everyone knows Zoom these days, whether it's consumer or B2B, everybody's had a Zoom experience. Um, just, but it, like from a marketer, I feel like they didn't have to work very hard. They just had a great product at the right timing. And so that's probably why I'm jealous of them. Yeah, that's a funny thing about Zoom is people forget their founding year. I think they were started in something like 2011, which is always shocking to people that they were the one of those overnight sensations that took years to build, as people like to say. So they, they certainly parlay their, their market timing into a great business and a great brand. And they've also become a verb, right? You spoke about a tech brand becoming a verb. Zoom certainly has that. Yep, agreed. And you, you've been part of or you've witnessed or you advised on different rebrands and renamings over the years. So what would be your dream rebrand that you would have loved to be a part of? I, I kind of think I already answered it. I mean... I was, I was part of, I didn't create the Lego. I wasn't part of the design team, but um, I was, I was at Starbucks and participated in the, the rollout of the rebrand there. And I think, you know, from the, 
the scale, the strategic reasons why they were doing it, changing the iconic logo that everyone knows, modernizing the brand, expanding it beyond the coffee category, and then just the operational complexity of rolling it about out. Like I said, every sign, every cup, every apron, every piece of material had to be impacted. And so like when I think about the courage that the company had to take an iconic brand and evolve it into, um, you know, where the business was, was one, a really important strategic bet, but it was also just from a marketing perspective, like what it took to do that was just a massive learning experience. Yeah, that's great. It's pre- pretty cool to be part of any, any change at all to such a iconic brand that's known by probably 95% plus percent of people around the world. So Lynn, we, we love to ask guests to pick three words to describe a brand they've worked on. So you can either pick your current role at Heap or other past leadership experiences. So what three words would you pick to describe a particular brand you've worked on? Well, I'll, just, I'll describe Heap because it's um, top of mind for me right now. And I'll, I'll describe it in two phrases. One, it's speed to insight. And the second one, emotional and sort of confidence in decision-making. So it's really that combination of the value of the value of the product and then that emotional connection to customers. That's great. A great distillation of, of what the product does. That's, that's very thoughtful. And we like to ask a lot of customers we talk to about how they think of branding as an art versus a science. Now we'll, we'll cheat and frame this as a scientific question by making you put percentages on them. So if you were forced to unfairly be forced to give a percentage of what uh, percentage of branding is art versus science, what two percentages would you apply to art and to science? I do think the art and the emotion and the storytelling of branding is critical. It is, it is how people understand who you are. And so I give it 40%. I am putting the heavier weight on the science, um, which is the 60%. Um, and I do think you can measure emotion and creative impacts. So maybe there's 100% on science, but you can't, like that's just how you understand if it's effective. But I think when you're thinking about marketing, you have to put those together. But I do think the, the ways we reach people, the mediums, all of that are really science and hypothesis driven. Yeah. And that's a good point. Even the art can be measured. Even the art can be scientific these days. Exactly. And you talked a bit about metrics and bringing data to the financial leaders and CEOs you've worked with. And that was your first takeaways In, in measurement conversations, always bring data, don't bring stories. So what would you say is the most important brand metric you've used? Sounds like you you talked about looking at uh, association metrics. You talked about looking at awareness metrics and um, competitive favorability metrics. So is there one or two brand metrics that always rise the top when you think of reporting on a metric to your team? Yeah, I, I do think perception measurement with brand is critical, understanding how your brand is perceived because that guides, do, are you, do you have the right perception or are people understanding, interpreting your marketing and your messaging well? Um, and then the second one I think is more on the quantitative side of um, it's really just share of voice because um, I think it's an indicator of, of 
your, you know, I, I look at share of voice, but also like, like growth relative to competition. And so it's just an indicator of, are you winning? <laughs> and do, are you connecting with people? Yeah, that's great. Appreciate that. And we always like to ask and let you give a shout out to anyone you think deserves shouting out, but who are your favorite mentors in the, in the brand space or your favorite thought leaders around brand building? Anyone that has been influential on your thinking? fortune of working with um, some amazing marketing leaders. Um, and there's there's a couple of people that I would shout out to. So Daniel Teat, who's the CMO at YouTube right now, I worked with her at Microsoft back in the day. And I, I think she approaches and she sort of led that, that being um, rebranded, relaunch. And she approaches brand and thinks about things holistically of how is it being received by the customer and the consumer. And I think she's always just been instrumental in thinking through a progressive way to evolve marketing as a function. And so I think she's probably one. And then there's another woman, Elisa Fink, who is the CMO at Tableau. And I, I think what she did that was so special, Tableau is a B2B brand and it was a brand that was about people. It was an analytics product, but the brand promise was about people, connection, and community was one of the strongest things that she created around the brand. Um, and so I just think in terms of innovative approaches to building brand presence in a market into very different categories, those are the two people who have, I've learned so much from and I always go back to for advice. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. And I'm sure they'll appreciate the shout outs. <laughs> I'll have to get them as podcast guests one day as well. Absolutely. So Lynn, appreciate all these insights. I know the Let's Talk brand listeners will enjoy everything you said. Is there anything we didn't cover when you think of Let's Talk brand? Is there anything you wish we had talked about? You did a really good job covering everything. I think that the final comment that I'll I'll just make that is probably repetitive of things we've talked about, but it's it's remember like brand is everything. It is the perception of your company. So if you really embrace brand holistically, um, you 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 can't afford to ignore it. You can't afford to understand it in the market. And I really appreciated the opportunity to share share my thinking on this. Thank you, Lynn, for joining us today. I know our listeners will love hearing your stories and your journey as a brand builder, both with consumer brands and B2B brands. So thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.